0: Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We continue our our study tonight. Now at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 31 through chapter 5, verse 2. I'm going to actually begin the reading at verse 25, picking up last week's text. This is the follow-through on that passage. How does God... Want Christians to live. Let me invite you to consider that from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving One another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Grass withers, flowers fade. Because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh, teach us your word, we pray. Speak to us. Humble us. Rescue us. Show us Jesus. Bless us. Make us a blessing. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Korean War, a South Korean pastor and chaplain got taken captive by the North Korean communists. And a young teenage soldier, filled with hate, screaming at him, spitting at him, abusing him, was seeking information from this chaplain, which he didn't get when that didn't work. They brought in the chaplain's young son. And this crazed communist teenager pointed a gun at the chaplain's son's head. And when he didn't get all that he wanted, he eventually pulled the trigger. And after the war, the chaplain appeared at a military trial of his own son's murderer and given permission to speak He addressed the panel of judges and he said, give this man to me and I will bring him home and I will train him. And surprisingly, they did that. And so the father accepted a new son and the son received a new father and they lived together. And the father trained his son and the son became a Christian. And a pastor like his father. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Would anyone do such a thing? How could they do such a thing? Can you imagine a world where all who are offended and hurt are as gracious as that chaplain? Can you imagine a world where all who offend and hurt are so changed? That world exists the bible calls it the new jerusalem the heavenly city the kingdom of christ it's a kingdom and world of love and if you are a christian that world has come into your heart and has begun to have its way with you how does god want christians to live paul says god wants christians chapter 5 verse 1 To imitate God and live a life of love. This is what he wants. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's what he says. Be imitators. Mimic. That's the word. Become like him and to be like him. Not imitate Christ and turn water into wine. Not imitate Christ and make the blind to see. But imitate him in a life of love. So he's not, he's not talking about the sput- spectacular. He's not talking about doing the miraculous. But the far greater and more important generosity of spirit that gives and forgives again and again. A couple of weeks, my family's going to go to the uh, uh, Homeschool National Basketball Conference in Springfield, Missouri. A couple of the kids are playing in that. Some of the kids will watch every game they can. They'll want to stay to the very end, no matter when their tournament ends. They'll want to see the final varsity championship game. They'll want to watch it for the enjoyment, pleasure of basketball. But they also need to watch it. They need to watch what they aspire to be. That's the best way to learn anything. To follow a master. To pattern your game after someone who knows what they're doing. Likewise, we are to mimic God, Paul says. So three questions tonight. What does that look like? Why do we do it? And where do I get the ability to do that? First question, what's that look like to mimic God? He says it looks like a life of love, verse 2. And walk in love, he says. Now, I want to say this. This is an occasion in which your, your English Bibles don't help you. Because they've inserted the chapters and verse divisions for you. And it would be easy to come to the end of chapter 4 and think, well, we're kind of done with Paul's thought there. The therefore at chapter 5 verse 1 turns to a new subject or something. But it doesn't. It's a summary statement. Paul is gathering into one thought everything he's been saying since chapter 4 verse 25 at least. About all the ways we're supposed to live. So don't stop your reading at the end of chapter 4. But keep going here. And what is he saying? He's, he's been reminding you of the commandments. We, we talked about this. He's, he's spoken of lying, not, not uh, telling falsehood. That's the ninth commandment. Don't bear false witness, but tell the truth. And then he turned to the eighth commandment, or the sixth, first, in verse 26. He, he spoke of not being angry and letting the sun go down on your anger. And anger, as Jesus taught us, emanates from the heart. And it expresses itself in murder and you shall not commit murder is the commandment. But he took it to the heart, anger. And then he turns at uh, verse 28 to the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And so what does he say? Well, work hard and make a bunch of money and then be really generous with it. That's kind of what he says. I mean, if the Lord in his providence allows He's walking you, in other words, through the commandments. He's reminding you of them. And, and I simply want you to see that now in verse 31, which is where we're beginning to look, he turns again to issues related to anger and malice in heart and what it needs to be replaced by in verse 32. So he's, he, and, then, and then he sums it up. He says, therefore, live a life of love. What has he just described? what love looks like in action in other words he's watching through some of the ten commandments and he's just summing it up and saying this is what this is what love is the law means love love means these things the law for instance tells me to work hard so i can have money possessions food and clothing so i can be generous to the needy that's what love is love and law go together in other words Rather than divorcing love and law, the Bible joins them and unites them. Jesus did it this way in the Gospel of John. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love and obedience. Put them together. So love is the calling and law is the detail. Law tells us to act. And love shows us how to act. So the, so the Ten Commandments, we've, we want to say, aren't irrelevant to you. The law... Isn't irrelevant. It it humbles you and it drives you to Christ to be saved. If you're a Christian, you've experienced a measure of that. You've been convicted by the fact that you don't keep the law and you need a savior. And it pointed you to Jesus to be saved. And Jesus gives you his grace and he makes you new. And his grace then says: now that you're new, the law is the way that you live. Live this way, it's the detail. Don't do this, do this. So at verse 31, he begins with the negative. Here's what love doesn't do. Love, he says, doesn't do these things. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, along with all malice. He's inviting you to self-examine here. Love, he says, is not bitterness or long-standing resentment of heart that won't let go of the past. Love doesn't say, I don't care how much they beg, I'll never forgive them. That's not what love does. Love isn't wrathful. It doesn't fly into a rage and a fury. It's not a short fuse waiting to explode. Nor is it anger, that more settled and seething hostility and disposition. And love, he says, is not clamor. It's a bit of an unusual word for us, but he's just talking about a a hot temper shouting and yelling, banging away at each other. You ever hear people just yelling at one another? Ever yell at anybody? That's clamor. And love is not slander. Walking away from that person, we might say, and turning to others and saying, would you want to know who that person is? Can I just tell you a little bit? About what that person did to me or said to me. And how they offended me. And how awful and evil that person is. Exaggerate. Misrepresent. This is what he's saying. But love doesn't do these things. And it isn't. He finally concludes. End of verse 31. It isn't malice. Get rid of that too. It it doesn't say in it's heart. I could just kill them. I want to destroy them. Now let me ask you this question. Haven't you been... Unloving, by that standard, perhaps even just this week. Perhaps even more than once. Haven't we all, at times, wished to inflict injury or harm or suffering on someone for something they said or did? I may not do it with my hands, but I've done it with my heart and I've said it with my lips, haven't you? Don't we need to be forgiven of these things? And Jesus came to forgive unloving people just like us but the apostle paul says love doesn't do these things positively then what does love do verse 32 he says well this is what love is be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another so that he seems to be saying this you know when you're on the other side of the equation of verse 31 or 25 to 31 and and somebody has hurt you or offended you when they didn't tell you the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth Or they didn't speak in such a way as to build you up, but to tear you down. Or they burst out in anger at you and they let that anger simmer a long time against you. Or when they stole from you. Or or when they had something you could have used and they hoarded it to themselves. How do you respond to that? When they're bitter and angry and yell at you and slander you, what what does love do? He says it does three things. Number one, it's kind. So it doesn't duck and run for cover just to avoid this difficult person, this sinful person. Love thinks, what can I do to benefit them, to be a blessing to them, to actually help them? This kindness is patterned on God himself. He does good even to his enemies. In Luke 6, Jesus said this at verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is what God is like, friends. You know, the, we've talked just in the last few weeks about Augustine, the great Saint Augustine. He was a Christian man, famous in church history. He, he had lived a, a very promiscuous life. He had indulged his flesh at every turn. He had dabbled in false cults. Uh, he had done all kinds of things, but eventually he ended up in Milan, and he, he, he met the Christian pastor, Ambrose. And recalling later how he had, Augustine, had come to faith, he reflects on the influence of Ambrose. And he says this, it was not your great teaching. I scarcely expected to find that in the Christian church in any case. (laughs) But that you were kind to me. You were kind to me. Perhaps what he's saying is, I saw in you someone who was kind, and and it occurred to me that maybe the God you serve is likewise kind. And so Paul says, be kind to one another. And secondly, uh, love is tenderhearted from the heart. You you can't fake this stuff he's saying. You can't uh, just think in your mind, well, I, I guess if I have to do this, you know. It's not about pretending to be kind, pretending to be useful, just so you can really move people along and sort of ease them out the door or out of your way. But it's being kind from a real sympathy and compassion for people. That's what love is. And love is, in the third place, it's also not only kind and tenderhearted, it's forgiving. I want to spend a little extra time here. Forgive, he says, forgiving, not because it's the right thing to do. Not because anger and bitterness will destroy you as you hold it against others thinking it's destroying them. That's often the case. Not forgiving here, he says, because watch out or you will get thumped by God. That is not what he says here. But be forgiving. Why? How? Forgive us. God in Christ forgave you. So here's the definition, friends. Forgiveness means letting others go free from your punishment of them when they have hurt or offended you. Letting others go free. There are a lot of misunderstandings about forgiveness. I don't want to walk you through some of them. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting what happened. Why do I say that? First, because God does not forget. No matter what you think of Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four and the places it's quoted in the book of Hebrews where it says God will remember our sins no more. It, that doesn't mean he actually forgets them as if the omniscient God had a way of not remembering anything that goes on in his universe. No, but it is a word picture. He, it's saying he forgives us, and he's, he's not holding them against us. He's not going to throw them in our face. He's not going to bring them up and punish us for them. That's what he's talking about here. And So, so forgiveness is not simply, you know, sort of forgetting, either intellectually or emotionally. That we've been seriously hurt by somebody. And, and if you try to forget, in the very act of trying, all you can do is think of the thing you're trying to forget and you'll remember. So it doesn't mean that. And that should relieve some, of, maybe, perhaps, some in here. That just because you remember what happened doesn't mean you haven't forgiven it. A lot of people have been trapped into this cycle of thinking, I haven't really forgiven, I thought of it again. Forgiveness also does not mean you quit feeling pain. Sometimes the only way to stop hurting when you have been hurt is to stop feeling by dying emotionally, drying up, shutting down your emotions. But that doesn't mean you've forgiven somebody. Feeling hurt by what happened doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. And forgiveness does not mean, as well, it does not mean you cease longing for justice where justice is appropriate. Vengeance is not an entirely bad thing. It's just usually really bad in the hands of sinful people. But, but vengeance is an attribute of God, and he would be guilty of sin if it was inherently evil. He's better at vengeance than you and I will ever be, and so we are to leave it in his hands. Forgiveness means you decide to let God be the avenger when and if he chooses for what needs to be avenged. Forgiveness does not mean you, you, you therefore make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. It doesn't mean that. L- love doesn't aid people in sinning, even in sinning against you. So it, it doesn't mean you just have to go on and on and, and, and never speak up or, or never walk away in certain circumstances. It doesn't mean that. You don't have to be a doormat for somebody else's sin. That's not what forgiveness is. And there's also this, forgiveness is rarely a one-time climactic event. It's more like a long-time process. It, 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 it may very well begin with an act, usually has a beginning, but it requires a lot of reaffirmation as you again and again choose not to punish someone who's hurt you. You might be praying, I I forgive, Lord, help my lack of forgiveness and keep me from punishing them. And so you are, in a sense, choosing to forgive again and again and again. So forgiveness does mean you determine to be gracious to people when they've hurt you. That's the kind of love God wants us to have. Kindness tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and it's not an optional extra, he says. Mimic God and live a life of love, Paul says. Being unloving is the easy thing to do here then, isn't it? I mean, just be a little bit prickly, be easily offended, and nurse those hurts and turn them back on the other person. You get hit, hit them harder. That is the easiest thing to do in the world. But loving is not easy. It requires deciding to be kind. And helpful, compassionate from the heart, gracious to people, choosing to mimic God. Why would anybody love like this? And how could you possibly begin to love like this? The last two questions. Why would you love like this? Well, notice Paul's language here, chapter 5, end of verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. A lot of people say, I mean, this, this idea, this Christian worldview here is, I mean, that's crazy. That's stupid. I mean, stand up for yourself. Be strong. People push you, push them back. People cut you off on the highway. Cut them off when they try to merge. Right? Is someone yelling at you? Yell louder at them. <clears> hmm. <throat> Has somebody hurt you? Make sure everybody knows what an evil person they are. I mean, this is the way of the world. Why would Christians be different from that? Two reasons. Number one, because you're a child of God. Paul says, Live a li- uh, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, Alex Smith, I don't know if you know that name, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, lost his starting job somewhere mid to late season. Because he, he'd gotten knocked out. He, he got a concussion. He, he was, at the time, the NFL's highest rated passer, and he was leading the 49ers, as perhaps some of you know, onto what was eventually the Super Bowl, which they did lose, but pretty impressive. Well, the backup quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, if I've said it right, got to play. And then after Smith was well, the coach didn't take out Kaepernick. Just before the Super Bowl, the 49ers versus Baltimore, I was listening to a sports radio talk show. And one of these guys, was uh, these commentators, was just mouthing off about Smith. How he'd been demoted as a quarterback, and he must be angry. He must be spiteful. He must feel in his heart vindictive. And he must be hoping his team loses the Super Bowl. He must be hoping the new quarterback fails just to show everybody what fools the team was to pick this other guy. And, of course, the other sports commentator took the other side of the issue. No, this man is a professional. He wants to win the Super Bowl. And they're teammates. He's going to help him. Well, the team did lose the Super Bowl. And the demoted quarterback, Smith, is evidently being traded away. And the new quarterback, Kaepernick, had this to say about Smith. Quote, he was always in my ear, making sure I was seeing the defense. Did I see safeties? Do this. Did I see the rotation? Did I see things like that? He was just making sure I had mental clarity when I step on the field. You see what he's saying? He helped me. He helped the team win. He helped me. Why? Because, of course, Smith is a mature professional. He is what he is. And so he acted like what he was. I don't know his heart. Surely there was an understandable desire on his part to be restored as the number one quarterback. But whatever resentments might be natural for him for the sake of doing what he was called to do, Serving how he was called to serve, helping the team win, he evidently put that aside. Sinking the team, on the other hand, is what you might expect of an immature peewee football player who didn't get his place on the team, right? Or maybe an immature high school player. But helping the team is what you might expect of a mature, multi-million dollar pro. And likewise, I think the Apostle Paul is saying to us here, Be, dear Christian, what you are, in fact. And act like what you are. And you are a child of a father in heaven who is kind and generous and gracious and forgiving. Why would Christians live like this? Because you're a child of this father. But more than that, end of verse one, you're a beloved child. Because you're beloved, you're dearly loved children. You are already his well-beloved children. Already. Walk in love not to gain his approval. Not because you have to measure up to the family name. Not because you have to love in order to be loved. But love because you already are loved is what he's saying. Love because you've already been accepted dear children your father is saying to you i love you and i want you to be like me and this is how we live in my house love that's why christians are to love like this that's why but let's be honest this is hard where do we get the ability to love like this it's one thing to tell you you ought to do it obviously this is incredibly hard because we have hurts and bitterness is easy And the only way to avoid being offended in this world and hurt by others is to lock yourself up in a box and never step out of your room. Come out of your protective cocoon and face real people and real people will disappoint you. Real people will fail you. Welcome to a world populated by people just like you. Fallen, bent on themselves, selfish, vindictive, All trouble between you and another person is an occasion either then to give the devil a foothold to destroy. That was Paul's language back when he said, Do not give the devil a foothold by letting the the sun go down on your anger, by holding on to it, not dealing with it. And so all trouble is either an opportunity to give the devil a foothold to destroy or to give Jesus an opportunity to heal. And either we stew in anger and open a door for the devil... The slanderer, he's called, the destroyer of people, to stir up trouble and dissension and division and separation. Or we ask Jesus to work kindness and to work tenderheartedness and to work forgiveness and to work love into our hearts, leading to reconciliation. Oh, friends, when we've been hurt by others, either we become more like the devil and hate, full of it, full of hate. Or. By God's grace, we can become more like Jesus, full of love for the unlovely. Where do I get the resources to do this, to live this? Well, ask yourself this question, I think Paul is saying. How has God treated you? Making the rounds on Facebook these days is a YouTube video of a basketball game between Coronado High School in El Paso, Texas, and some other school. Uh, Mitchell Marcus was a team manager and because of a a mental disability he didn't play the game with the team but he he helped on the sidelines but for the the last basketball game of the year the coach let him suit up and wear the uniform and determined to put him in at the end of the game no matter what the score was and the coach did just that and as the crowd chanted Mitchell, Mitchell His teammates passed him the ball time after time, and he missed shot after shot, or he dropped the ball out of bounds. And with just seconds on the clock, Jonathan Montanez, the opposing team's player who was inbounding the basketball, softly called out to Mitchell and softly passed the ball to Mitchell, the opposing player. And in a moment before time expired, Mitchell hit the shot of his career. And the crowd went nuts. When asked why he passed the ball to Mitchell, Jonathan said, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. And I want to say to you, Paul is saying that, but he's actually saying far more than that. Not just, wow, look at how that kid treated the other kid. I should be like that. I'd want to be treated like that. And we would. And that, that, don't get me wrong, that principle is a biblical principle. It's a good way to live. But Paul, I think, is saying more here. He's saying treat others the way you have been treated by Jesus. And say to yourself, I'm that kid who missed every shot. I'm that kid who dropped the ball out of bounds. I'm that kid who doesn't really merit wearing the uniform. I shouldn't even be in the game. And Jesus inbounded the ball to me when I was on the opposite team, playing against him instead of for him. But of course, it wasn't a game. It was a war. And I wasn't out to beat him. I was out to destroy him. And when I was his enemy, he loved me and he gave himself for me. Say to yourself, I am more sinful and wicked than I have ever dared imagine. But I am in Christ at the same time more loved, forgiven, pardoned, accepted than I have ever dared hope. And so the wounds that have been that others have committed against me, however large they are in my experience, are small. Compared to the wounds I inflicted on Christ when I nailed him to the tree and he released me and he forgave me. Only when you realize you are the recipient of a kindness you don't deserve, that you are the recipient of forgiveness you do not deserve. That you can be freed from the power of bitterness and enabled To love and be kind in return. To forgive those who don't deserve it. And so we are, he says, to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And how did God forgive us? He he canceled the debt against us that we have accrued. And he nailed it to Christ on the cross and he bore it away. He paid it all. And so truly, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he isn't blackmailing us with our sins. He's not holding them over our heads. Now this is costly forgiveness, friends. Let me think of it this way. If your neighbor borrows a car and he backs out of the driveway and crushes your kid's bike, what do you do? You basically have three options if your homeowner's insurance doesn't cover it, right? You can pay for a new bike. You can make your neighbor pay for a new bike if he's willing, or the two of you can split the difference. You can share the cost. You can demand that your neighbor pay for it, or you can refuse to let your neighbor pay for it, or you can share it. But in all these scenarios, somebody pays the cost to replace the bicycle. Either you bear the cost or they bear the cost, or you share the cost. Now, forgiveness means you refuse to let them bear the cost, and you bear the cost yourself. So when somebody hurts you, you refuse to punish them, yourself. You refuse to pay them back for what you think they deserve. You absorb the debt. You suffer the pain of their sin instead of making them suffer the pain of their sin. It means you give up revenge, no matter how badly a fellow Christian has hurt us, no matter how unjust they have treated us. Christ died for that sin. Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. Every sin that has ever been committed will be justly punished, friends, either in hell or on the cross. God never sweeps one little teeny white lie under the rug. It gets what's coming to it in justice. Somebody always pays. And when we forgive, we recognize that either the person who committed it against us will trust Christ in the end, in which case the wrong they committed against us was punished in Christ. Or they will, in the end, reject a Savior and they will experience what that sin deserves from the hand of god himself in justice but every sin will get what's coming to it without you taking revenge if we harbor vengeance against one another we we sin as christians by belittling christ's sacrifice acting as if christ hasn't already been crushed for that sin does their sin deserve death of course it does Does it deserve retribution, just retribution? Of course it does. Does their sin deserve to be punished? Absolutely. And Christ was cursed for us upon the cross. So forgive as you have been forgiven, the Bible says. And secondly, and finally, love as you have been loved. And how has God loved me? Well, he says, verse two, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is he saying in that last expression there, friends? What is he saying? That the whole of Jesus' life was fully and totally devoted to God. In utter surrender and dedication to God. He picks up the language of Leviticus chapter 1 and the burnt offering. The offering, the one offering that was wholly and completely consumed on the altar... And the smell of it rose into the very nostrils of God, so to speak. And it was well-pleasing to him. It was representative of the whole of the person being committed to God. And it was substitutionary. It was in the place of us because not one of us has been wholly and fully ever committed to the Lord. Not like you ought to be. God has always taken a substitute in your place a burnt offering in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus in the New who always did what the Father wanted. He lived the way the Father wanted him to live and he loved the way we ought to have loved but haven't. And he did it for us and he did it in our place so that we could be spared what we deserve. Do you wish to learn how to love then, friends? You need to learn to know how much you are forgiven and at what cost. Do you feel like a failure? (laughs) Who doesn't feel like a failure in the face of a text like this? We're all failures at forgiveness and love. There's only one who's never failed. And it's the privilege of dearly loved children to start over again and again and again each time they fail why because jesus is not only our model for forgiving others he is our hope for being forgiven and he loves to do let's pray father in heaven you know our hearts and our pains our sorrows and our sins we pray that you would forgive us and release us and cleanse us. You would heal our wounds. That you would make us more like Jesus. You would deepen within us our experience and knowledge of the love of Christ. That we would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus. And abound in that love towards others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Hey,